I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is a broking CEO on an ambitious mission to grow global revenues many fold with the backing of a strategic owner. Now, that may sound familiar to regular listeners, but Steve Hearn of Corrent Global is going about things quite differently. At a time when most broker holding companies are at pains to hive up all their underlying brands into an overarching global brand identity, Steve is allowing multiple broking houses to flourish under the newly minted Corrent banner. A veteran of senior executive positions at large and small brokers alike, Steve now runs a holding company and not an operational broking business. This means he isn't bogged down or distracted by the day-to-day and has the job of thinking strategically about where broking in our market is going in the short, medium and long term and positioning Corrent accordingly. Corrent also has a different sort of owner, the capital markets-focused BGC and ultimately the Cantor Fitzgerald Group. And the influence of this different variant of financial services culture is highly noticeable. And that's what makes this podcast special. Rarely have I had such a focused conversation on what is happening in the broking landscape and where things are headed. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you could be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. So, Steve, thank you so much for breaking away from your busy schedule to speak to the Voice of Insurance. First question, you've just gone through a rebrand. Run us through the thinking behind the rebrand into the Corant brand that you've got now. Thanks for the invitation, Mark. Yes, we've just rebranded, as you've noted, Hold Co. So it's the top co that's rebranded. We've been carrying around the description of BGC Insurance. We're owned by BGC, of course. And I think we felt with our owners that there was an appropriate moment in terms of scale and maturity. We're actually defining our business with a distinctive brand, the Holdco. I'll emphasize again, Corrent was felt right to everybody. It's still a nod to our parent. Corrent, for those who haven't spotted, would be an anagram of Cantor. And of course, BGC is chaired by Howard Lutnick, chairman and CEO of BGC and chairman and CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, in fact, my boss. So uh, a little nod to the boss, perhaps. So he quite liked the name as well, which is always helpful when you're doing things like that. 
What's the real rationale? But obviously, it's nice to have a new brand and get people to look at you in a different light again. But is there something different, something more meaty? Is it a discrete legal entity so that you've got something that now owns all the broking assets within BGC? Exactly, Mark. In fact, there's lots of things we can now do that the rebrand enables. But yes, literally, there is a company, Corrent Global. We have a website. We have a web address, corrent.com. And we are moving the legal entities from different parts of BGC, quite normal in acquisitions for different entities to be used to make those acquisitions. So we'll now go through a tidy up. And that sounds terribly easy. And is my legal colleagues would be horrified that I describe it as such, because it's actually quite complicated as you move legal entities around and seek regulatory approvals, etc. But all of BGC's insurance subsidiaries will be owned within the entity that is current.com. And then other things come as well. We can start to talk about long-term incentivization around that entity. We can start to use it as the brand by which we pursue our M&A opportunity. We can start to think about things that are common in the businesses that we own and things like that. It's a step, but you're right to point to there must be other reasons to it, for sure. So you could borrow money, for example, as that entity, you could bring in a third party investor, that kind of thing. You could. No, that's not in the immediate plan. Good question. But no, neither of those things are in our immediate plans at all. But yes, having separate entities allows all sorts of things to happen. What about the thinking behind keeping a top co, but having all these different brands, Ed, Besso, I think there's still some remnants of the old Cooper Gay brand around the world. And obviously, you've got Peak, your aviation broker. Tell us about the thinking behind that of keeping separate brands, whereas it seems to be in a world at the moment where brands are all being hived up into one identity. It seems to be you're going in the other way. Yes. And those brands are important to us. And will continue to be important to us. So no, this isn't a precursor to rebranding our entire insurance business into the whole co name, quite the reverse. We have seven brands, seven operating brands in the business, Ed and Besso, obviously both very significant in scale and maturity, as you say, startup with peak. We've also got our MGA brands around the world, Epsilon in Australia. Cooper Gay is the brand we use in Europe in terms of our MGA businesses, but seven in total. They're distinctive. They have value. They have currency. They are used in attracting talent used in attracting customers, used as trading entities, and they're important to us. So we we intend to continue that. And that will be the business model for the future. And I think also enables a sort of M&A dynamic that is different than others. Dear owner of your business with your name over the door, your name's important to you and it's important to us. It has value. So let's sustain it. Let's keep it. Let's move it on. Now, that doesn't mean we won't make smaller bolt-on acquisitions where it makes sense to merge things. And in fact, we did make a couple of acquisitions late 2019 and early 2020 into Cooper Gay. And both of those were merged into that entity and into that brand. But it gives us some flexibility. And as I say, we, we think they have value, are important, and we're going to sustain them. And you mentioned about potentially using Corrent to centralize some of those central services, I presume the sort of things like finance and HR and that kind of thing. Might there be some kind of group-wide incentive? Say you're a Besso member of staff, could you be possibly incentivized on Corrent's P&L? So yes and yes. We've started, in fact, sometime last year, we started to create entity-level function leaders. So there is one HR leader for the whole organization already, finance, IT, legal risk, compliance, etc. There are Those functions have been brought to become group activities and actually employees in terms of servicing 
different businesses and different brands, agnostic of those brands, they may even sit in as an employing entity. So we've done a lot of work there already, that's done. And that enables the synergy that some might say would be missing in that business model of sustaining the brands, right? So if we can create synergy through using common technology. So in fact, Ed is migrating onto a system that Besso uses, Peak's already on, things like that. We can drive synergy behind the scene whilst still allowing the brands to be distinctive and to operate. And yes, to your second question, yes, absolutely. The intention, we haven't done it yet, but the intention will be to create long-term incentivization around the whole entity, around the group. Obviously, there are incentives, shorter-term incentives in all of our entities around the world, as you would expect. But creating something that brings us together as a group of businesses is important. And in fact, in that regard, we've just done something quite interesting, I think. Q4 last year, we initiated a project, Project Ambition, which was to engage our employees in thinking about common values, common behaviors, purpose, mission, vision, that type of thing. And, and rather than that being created in the ivory tower or the <laughs> walnut paneled office of the CEO, quite the reverse, we engaged our colleagues in doing it. In fact, 80 people around the world were engaged during Q4, literally around the world, all of our operations around the world. And we are now, last week and this week, rolling that work out to all 900, over 900 of our staff around the world. And in fact, I was on a call this morning with Singapore and Australia, rolling it out to their teams there. And that doesn't change, again, the values and behaviors that Beso would have distinctive from Ed or Peak for that matter. But we found huge commonality in terms of the way people think about things, about what's important to them, about what values they have, why this could be more than a job, you know, why there could be some purpose to what we do. And it was incredibly enjoyable to participate in. And actually, I think we've ended up with something pretty powerful. We'll start to use that more externally at current level in terms of website and communication in due course. So I wouldn't want to go too far in answering the specifics. But again, something across the group and across the world. It has been pretty powerful. So it's like a best of both worlds thing where you can say, I'm still a BESO member of SOF, but I'm part of Corrent, and, and these are the kind of absolute values that we've got here. I think that's right. A generalism, but I think people identify very, very closely with the immediate team that they work in, a bit less closely, but with the next team at the next desk set along and it sort of aggregates up until you get to this sort of vague notion of somebody owns us don't they and there's an opportunity to say no it doesn't need to be like that we can all sit within the same framework of things that are important to us and create more identity so the calls we've had zoom calls inevitably that we've been having with people as we've rolled this out around the world haven't been for ed or for epsilon in australia but have been for the organization. And even that process has joined up a whole load of people around the organization as we've held virtual rooms and sent people off to introduce themselves to each other, talk about what's important to them, how they feel about the leadership message that we're creating and what value it has for them. It's been very powerful. And people feel, particularly at the moment, right, when we're sitting in rooms on our own, sitting in the kitchen, maybe not on the own because the kids are there, but that you belong to something greater, that it's doing something, that it has a purpose and, and has some things that are important to it. We've got six people in Miami. They do a fantastic job. They're amongst our most exemplary 
salespeople and cross-sellers and collaborative, etc. And I want them to know there's over 900 others out there who think similarly, who do similar things, whether they work for Besso or Ed or Absalon or Cooper Gay, Younger, etc. So that's what we're trying to do. And I think we've done a good job. As I say, we're literally rolling it out at the moment. Look forward to seeing that identity out there. You've already answered this, I think, as part of the answer to another question, but let's get it really clear out of the way because there probably was some speculation around with the rebranding exercise. It's not some sort of prelude to a sale or a big new investment from another third party. That's not the driver before this creating this discrete legal entity, Corrent. No, it isn't. No, no, and no. And I guess time will tell no, but no, it isn't. It is for the reasons that I've stated. Certainly, it enables that at some moment in the future, but there is no plan short term, mid term, or even long term in terms of plan to go through a change of ownership. And it's one of our advantages. A lot of our competitors are owned by private equity. We are owned by a long-term strategic investor. Mr. Lutnick likes the sector, is interested in the sector, has spent a lot of time with myself, Andy Wallin, and others in our leadership team in recent months, particularly given what's going on in our world. Uh, I mean, the insurance and reinsurance world and startups and capital flows and all of those types of things are in the man's DNA. So he wants to get involved and, and understand what's going on. So no, there was speculation last summer. There's always speculation, isn't there? But no, it is not a prelude to some event, whole or partial. Best never to leave any vacuums out there because, you know, all your competitors are out there will probably will fill the vacuum with all sorts of stories. <laughs> Even having said that, I'm sure others will say something different, but there we are. M&A, as you explained, there's loads of drivers for M&A at the moment. Obviously, private equity ownership that's continually rotating is one of those drivers. We've seen a lot of it already and lots of talk, certainly, that more is on the way within the broking market. Will you be getting involved in all of that? And if so, what sort of deals are you after? Yes, 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 and yes. So we are very keen to identify businesses that would fit within our group. It's been speculated that we've been involved in the last few transactions in the sector. True, we won't overpay. We have a view, we know what an insurance broker is worth and, and have put forward good propositions and for others in time to work out whether they were right in doing what they did. I think we offer some unique ingredients. As I said, I've already talked about brand and how we think about that. I think the fact that we have a long-term strategic investor is a differentiator. We do not have a private equity owner. This business is not for sale in the next four, five, six, seven years as a private equity owned firm must be by very definition returning to its lending partners. So I think we have some differentiation there. Our ambition, Mark, we've been very public about in the past and continue to be so. We want to grow the business to a billion dollars of revenue, $1 billion of revenue. This year will be in round numbers, a couple of hundred million. That five-fold increase in our revenues cannot come organically, or it could, but would take too many decades, certainly more than I've got. So we need to be active in the M&A space. Size-wise, we're not really, don't think that way. And again, a differentiator with others. Many private equity shops won't get out of bed for small deals. We find that quite interesting. There are definitely some roll-up opportunities elsewhere in the world. I'd like to acquire, I mentioned Miami earlier, I'd like to build on our Miami capability. There's lots of very well-run, good, strong, small family businesses serving Latin America based out in Miami. That would be an opportunity for us. But yes, it was rumoured some of our more immediate peer group that went through processes last year we were involved in. And yes, we'd love to have 
the opportunity to buy those types of businesses. And given several of them are owned by private equity, presumably in the next couple of years, we'll get that opportunity. It'll be about fit. It'll be about the people, their values, the business, not just defined by scale, as I say, because I think we'd want to be able to operate both ends of the scale. And I think for that matter, in London, there are still some very, very good, high quality, smaller firms out there who perhaps because of the pandemic will be sitting there and thinking about what they do with their business as they move forward. And that for sure offers us an opportunity. I think we'd be a very, very good owner for some of those businesses. So yes, we're very active. We have a pipeline. We look at building out. I should also probably say not just insurance brokerages, we absolutely are interested in building out our MGA capability further. And again, I wouldn't put scale as either restricting us a top or bottom end of spectrum there. If it's got good product, good people, good customer base, then we're interested in it. And then maybe heading a little bit more peripherally, just about got away with that, we look at adjacency. So in fact, I was on an M&A call this morning talking technology, some technology that's quite interesting Technology is what brought BGC to our sector. They are very, very well versed in risk exchanges and have been through that journey over decades now and see it in our world and are encouraging us to think about, are there some capabilities out there that we'd be a good owner of? So again, I wouldn't just restrict ourselves to insurance intermediaries or even MGAs. There's an opportunity for adjacencies to be attractive to us. But yes, we will be using Mr. Lutnick's money very wisely to make some acquisitions in time. So it was going to be on the investigative journalist's list of potential acquirers if there is a broker available or it's coming up for sale or something. Very, very happy to say yes to that if any of them are watching today. You mentioned actually about perhaps the only impediments to M&A being culture and other things that don't fit, but also price you mentioned earlier on. It seems like all assets have been bid up very, very high, financial assets, and every other asset seems to be near historic highs. But brokers seem to have been absolutely, never even had a correction as far as I can see. We've just, for the last 15 years, just been going up and up and up. You mentioned about you you wouldn't want to overpay for a broker. Have you got any commentary on the extent of the excess valuation that there is? I've seen some things, Mark, that have been very surprising in terms of prices that have been done on recent transactions, high, surprisingly high. When you're into five times revenue or 15 times adjusted EBITDA, I can't see how for an investor that that ultimately is ever going to make sense. I mean, how long are you going to have to hold before you've made an acceptable return? And given the vagaries of the industry, how does that make sense? So I find, I find some of that surprising. Having said that, there are some extremely high quality businesses out there with a very, very high quality of earnings that rightly attract very high valuations. Typically, they're in niches rather than broad brass PNC wholesale, typically very specialist in what they do. Don't have to be small in the specialism, but typically in a specialism, in a niche, and they just do it particularly well. I'm desperately trying not to use any names, but um, you'll take the hints. But um, double digits, EBITDA valuations for sure, 15 times seems surprising. And certainly when you get to five times revenue transactions, I, I just can't. Someone has a different calculator if they think that makes sense. Or maybe I'm, I'm not learning, but uh, certainly some extraordinary valuations. But I suppose if you've got really high margins and really high growth, then fair enough. Yeah. Again, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd take you to very niche specialists, and they absolutely deserve every penny they get for what they do and, and how they do it. 
but uh, some of them have been surprising. I'll leave it at that. Okay, we're talking about the business and the market more generally rather than M&A. Where are the best opportunities for current in 2021, Steve? I think firstly, what we've already got. So we're not done with the 900 odd people we have around the world and and those businesses and improving how we work, what we do, et cetera. And I talked about our project around values, behaviors, et cetera. That's important to us. So point one, what we've already got and working on that. And then maybe a subset of that is the significant investments we made in 2020 and moving those on further. So our two most significant investments in scale were Peak, the aviation business, which we started beginning of last year, and the investment we made in Bermuda, in creating Ed Bermuda. And those were significant investments. They will be further investments this year, further recruiting and uh, further talent. We hope to join those businesses. So pushing ahead with those investments will be important to us. A bit of organization as well, a little bit internal focus as well as externally focused. So been reported by others that Stephen Beard um, has joined us, joined us on the 1st of February. That's true. Formerly CEO of RFIB, ran exchanges insurance business, qualified FD, and arrives at Corrent to take responsibility for finance operations, all of our infrastructure, IT, and obviously our digital endeavors. So big agenda there, very significant hire for us into the organization. And Stephen joins Andy and I, Rob Dowman, Russ Nichols, Andrew Draycott, Phil Smage on our executive. So some work around there. There's a merger might happen in one of our larger competitors. We might be spending a little bit of time thinking about what that means for us. And as I've said, further work around embedding the output of our colleagues' work around values and behaviours. So we've got a very full agenda for the year, for sure. That merger, I'm taking a wild guess, is the Aon Willis merger. Don't think that's been approved yet, has it? No, 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 it hasn't yet, but we are sure that, that it will do by senior management on both sides. So one expects that they're well advised. Obviously, we don't know, do we? When you look at that strategically, and obviously we've already had MMC JLT, and also you look at the harder market that we've got at the moment, which of those is the bigger tailwind to you? The one that where you might be able to dislodge talent from these large brokers getting much, much larger, or just using the tailwind of the harder market around the world to be able to enable and help finance your growth, or is it both? Uh, yes, it is both, but let me let me substantiate that a little bit. So the thing, I, if I was picking from the words you used there, the thing I'd probably say is I'm not sure either is strategic in the way we think about our business, because I think the way we're thinking about our business is we'd just be responding to it as we would and do. So hiring talent is something we do. We've hired over 160 new professionals to the organization since January last year. So we're hiring and we're hiring well, and we'll continue to do so. And opportunity comes all the time out of our larger competitors, as well as our more immediate peer group, as well as smaller competitors. And a big part of what I think we do well is attract and bring that talent into the organization. And the hard market, likewise, when does an intermediary prove its value to its customer is when it's difficult. I think we add value throughout cycles, but the proof point is in our market. We were already seeing evidence of that at the end of 19 and obviously into early 2020, add the complexity and challenges our customers face, we all face in terms of the pandemic. And it's very, very difficult. So we have to prove our worth to our customers in navigating them and the carriers through those challenges. So I'm not sure they're strategic. 
I think what I'd say is the door's wide open in terms of opportunity and we're very focused, but it isn't a change. It's not a strategic moment of change or transformation in the organization because it's what we were already doing. It's what we do for a living. It's just a little bit more of it at the moment. One of the big plays specifically in the fallout of Aon Willis is in the reinsurance sphere. Certainty seems to have fired a starting gun metaphorically into independent brokers looking to really build their reinsurance capabilities globally to compete with what will become a big two. Do you think all of those businesses will be able to succeed in doing that? I mean, you know, you've been at a much larger entity and be much closer to reinsurance and, and have run the reinsurance part of a very large broker. So given that view, what's your gut feeling about the end game of that? Do you think some people would underestimate quite how much investment they m- would need to make, for example, to make a viable alternative to big two, even if it was only competing in certain niche classes and territories? Uh, so I've got some views. Yes, Mark, I've got some views. So there's lots of us, our own firm included, that are looking at this. What are our opportunities here resultant from the probable merger that's just about to happen? A lot of it will be defined on specifically what happens to Willis Re. And as we all know, regulators are having a look at the transaction, despite the protestations from the two leadership teams. There is some analysis going on. And at least one regulator has said, uh, mm, not so sure. Kiwis seem to be getting quite a lot right at the moment, don't they? But um, So we'll see, right? And it will be defining what happens to Willis Re about whether there's a big two or actually something else emerges. Whoever wins in terms of those conversations and, and what happens to Willis Re will determine whether there's two big ones and a third in some fashion or, or other. And, and there are obvious people who should be interested, and I'm sure are interested in being an acquirer of Willis Re or part of Willis Re, should the transaction require some form of divestment, which is possible. It's got to be possible. So we'll see. It still creates opportunity, I think, irrespective of what the outcome is there. Others have proven it is possible to create a very successful reinsurance alternative. I could point to a number of competitors. I'll pick Tiger as a very well-regarded intermediary who've built a very successful franchise. Is it going to be possible to grow something of the scale of Aon Benfield or Guy Carpenter as an independent? No. It is not going to be possible to do that. And even armed with part of Willis Re under your wing, the gap is huge. And hence why the regulators are looking at the degree of concentration. But is there plenty of opportunity? Are there lots of customers out there saying, please come up with some alternative solutions, come up with some credible capability? And certainly in terms of talent, talent that is interested in finding somewhere else to go and trade, definitely. There's lots and lots of opportunity. But are we trying to create the third? No. And I'm not sure who will be able to do that. And is it just about the barriers to entry? I mean, a recent, I had an interview with another CEO, a broking CEO in this kind of game. He mentioned the barrier to entry. He described it as the ticket to the dance. And these days, the ticket to the dance in reinsurance is a lot more expensive than it used to be because you need an analytical capabilities, actuarial capabilities, and all sorts of things that perhaps you wouldn't have needed 40 years ago. Do you think current are of a scale where you can definitely have a ticket to the dance, at least to present some alternative. Okay, no one's ever going to to challenge the big two because they're actually out of sight, I presume. But do you feel that you can get over those barriers to entry? 
Well, let, let me say we challenge the big two every day of the week. So we're competing with them in all sorts of different activities. We hire from them. We compete against them. We take clients from them, including some of their largest clients. So I don't think their scale is something that intimidates us. And I don't feel them disappearing off in the distance, no. And actually, I would say the ticket to the dance, as my colleague described it, uh, I'm not sure that's as marked as an extreme as it was a few years ago, actually, because I think the barriers to trade or the ticket to the dance was actually more expensive proportionately at that point. I remember when I was at Willis Re, who you referenced earlier, being taken along to see an infamous reinsurance buyer in our market, very capable man. And uh, he started to explain to me all of the modeling that we, Aon and Guy Carpenter, were doing for him. It was largely redundant because he did it all himself anyway and pointed to his vast array of cat modelers and analytical staff. So I don't know. Yes, I've got actuaries and cat modelers. We buy the tools but I'm not sure the cost of that ticket is perhaps the prohibitive thing. I think one of the challenges for building something of scale, of significant scale, of the degree that those two organizations have, is frankly the relation between the inwards relationship and the outwards placement. And I know people don't like talking about that. It takes us down dark avenues we long left behind, but there is a reality to that. And I remember when I first got to that reinsurance broker, one of their very senior team talking to me about my job was to try and find a way for it to be independent. We need your job, Steve, to convince Joe to let us do an MBO, he said. And I looked at him and I wondered whether that particular American reinsurance buyer would spend quite as much with Willis Re, which took it into McKinsey charge out rate level in terms of per hour, if Willis were walking past the door every year with several billion dollars of premium that was coming in through the front door. I felt there probably was some sort of relationship between the two. And I know there was. So absent huge volumes of inwards premium, the ability to leverage opportunity, not business, because that would be illegal, but the opportunity to leverage opportunity given the vastness of the inwards relationship. And of course, that's what the regulators are looking for and why I and others are getting telephone calls from the CEOs of reinsurance buyers saying, Steve, we need some alternatives here. Actually, just on a quick yes, no. If you were the regulator, would you wave through Aon Willis? Wave through no. Would I approve it? Yes. I would approve it with divestments. I think there is far too much concentration in some areas. We've talked about reinsurance. There are others, satellites. There's some areas where the degree of concentration we know as competitors, our markets know, as trading partners, and even the customers know. And it's not, it's not right. So I think the deal should, if I was a regulator, heaven forbid that would ever happen. But uh, I would approve what was subject to appropriate divestment. Okay, let's talk a bit more about the future. You've had all sorts of market roles. In fact, you almost probably created for yourself the founding chairman of the London Market Group role, which I I think I was there when you talked yourself into that job at at one of the old insider conferences many years ago. You're in the wholesale specialty and reinsurance world around the world, in hubs around the world. What's the future of that going to look like? And and what are you doing as current to, to build that? So yes, I do blame you for having done that. Yes. So yeah, actually, as I think about that, it's sort of uh, rolling out the story we started to create at that time, Mark. You'll recall it's years ago now, but we initiated 
the London Matters Review, which pulled together quantitative and qualitative data from customers and intermediaries and carriers to try and understand what was going on and started to point to some challenges. You remember at the time, though, there were lots of people who sort of said, no, it's a moment in time. It's he doesn't understand and for a sign of an earthquake and all this new capital is going to disappear and you know, rest of world doesn't really matter, etc. There were a number of naysayers at the time. I think the naysayers are few and far between now, rare, as we now look at things that have moved forward, as we recognize digitalization. And that was one of the themes that came out of that work at the time, as we think about cost challenge. And that was one of the themes that came out. Huge progress, but not enough in DNI. Right? And we pointed to that. And we pointed to if we can start to address some of these challenges, they can turn into opportunities and London can remain a vibrant part and maybe even still the primary part of a global insurance and reinsurance infrastructure. And if I was looking forward, and I'd sort of say that opportunity is even more compelling now than it was then, even more identifiable, even more certain that that is our opportunity. And I think in the last year, partly driven by this horrific pandemic, we've made huge progress on all sorts of fronts, technology perhaps being the most obvious, but many others as well. So uh, I think for us, London will continue to be important. Being in the other parts of the world, as you know from previous conversations you and I've had, is I think really important. London is part of the answer we offer to our customers. Technology is becoming increasingly important. The type of talent and where it comes from, we're trying to be at the forefront of that type of thinking as well. And through that, make ourselves a resilient business within a resilient sector in terms of growth and sustainability. So I think we're doing a good job. Something futuristic that is happening, which is, is interesting rather than just being in a plan that, for a vision for the future, something that's happening in the here and now. We've seen automatic underwriting initiatives unveiled at Lloyd's. As a broker, what's your response to that? Do you want to become an automatic broker to match up with that? Yes, in part, yes. So we're a participant in algorithmic underwriting. We supported Key and we're supporting others as they start to develop their plans. I think we're very high user in terms of, and both in Ed and Besso in London and anticipate using it elsewhere, that thinking elsewhere in our group and fits very, very nicely with our owner's view of what will happen in our sector. And as I said earlier, has already happened in core financial services to them 20, 30 years ago. So they've sort of seen the story and are seeing it repeat in our sector and bringing that expertise and in some cases, literally that technology to us. So we're doing a lot. We have a chief digital officer, a chap called Jonathan Prynne, who's taking that thinking forward for us. We've got some other tools within the broader group that we think give us some significant opportunity. So Cantor Fitzgerald raised money, a very active period they've had, particularly around SPACs, by example. So having part of your group that raises and deploys capital is unique. Our biggest competitors don't have a Cantor Fitzgerald nor do our peer group. So that's interesting. Nor do they have a BGC who've written the story before and, as I say, have some technology and experiences that are relevant. So I think we've got some unique ingredients which come together at this moment in time that give us an opportunity and maybe an edge over others. And we've done quite a lot of work in that regard. Bermuda is a big focus for us in terms of 
incubation of new technology, new ideas. So we're spending quite a lot of time there thinking about how we deploy, how we move forward. But yes, we're active participants and supporters of algorithmic underwriting models. It won't apply to everything, however. And again, I go back to my parent. There are three work streams within BGC itself, the core business, a group of people who spend their time working electronically, a group of people who spend their time voice trading, they call it, and a group of people who hybrid between the two, who use technology to enable the conversation with the customer. So low touch, high volume activities are handled electronically and things that require bespoke and significant intellectual property are handled by human beings and the things that sit in the middle are handled by both. And that seems appropriate to our world as well. I can see us having lots of human beings who still talk to customers and talk to underwriters and design and create solutions. And I see other things which will trade far more automatically using technology with our customers and with carriers in, a, in frankly, a more efficient way for that type of business. So it's not about automating everything because you can, it's automating the things that you should. I saw your previous podcast, maybe it will be one before this, and I agree with a lot that was said there. You know, I think a lot of our thinking for the last few years hasn't actually been thinking about the business model itself, but has been digitizing the existing business model. And I agreed with that. I think that's right, but it's not what we should be doing. We should be thinking about the business model, and there's an opportunity there, particularly as we think about the automation is an opportunity to not just digitize the slip, but challenge its very existence. And I think that was the, maybe I'm over-summarizing that uh, podcast, but, but I think that is the point. And our parent would tell us there are many who made that mistake 20 and 30 years ago in their core sector by just applying technology to an existing model. And that is a mistake. Well, let's see if you're any good at predicting your powers of prediction, Steve. What do you think that subscription market in London or globally could look like or will look like in 10 years' time? Percentage, you mean? Yes. I mean, how much of it's just going to be businesses automatically transacted and it just appears as numbers somewhere? And how much of it is going to be spoken about and brokered in perhaps an old-fashioned sense, but almost certainly transacted electronically behind the scenes, but um, still brokered as a deal that needs to be spoken about? So again, I talk a lot to others in other sectors who've been through similar experiences and similar opportunities. And if that's a guide, about a third of it is transacted electronically, about a third of it is transacted by human beings in their case on telephones, and about a third of it by both. So a sort of hybrid emerges, and that seems sensible. I've heard others, very, very senior people at Lloyd's and elsewhere, talk about 50% of our market in London being transacted by algorithmic underwriting tools within a very short period of time. And I, I wouldn't say they're wrong, but I think some form of hybrid's got to emerge. I don't think it can be as clear cut as it's one or the other. I think there's going to be some blends in there as well. Do you think that's the real prize of all this? Is actually, you could be talking about a much larger pie for the subscription market if it's able to automate and then can concentrate on the real added value. That's our opportunity. I absolutely think that. The opportunity to be the global center of excellence and that attaches to it all sorts of things, not just technology, is our opportunity. It was our opportunity when we said, hang on, there's a problem four or five years ago. It might be longer ago now, I suppose. And then over recent iterations, as others have carried that ball much further forward, we've started to make progress. And yes, we've just got to carry on the direction, pick up the pace, and that creates, sustains the center of excellence forever. Well, 
maybe not forever. Obviously, we're in a very cost-focused market. We wanted to cut costs as part of one of the drivers for behind investing in technology, not just about doing things better and doing more things. Is it inevitable, obviously, with acquisition costs in the London market and the wholesale market generally, is it inevitable as we automate more that it's right that the brokerage levels, commission levels, should fall correspondingly as the frictional costs disappear? Definitely. Yes, we've been advocating it for several years. I absolutely think that the commission rate needs to come down. At the same time, it can't be in the wrong order or we end up with the sector falling over. But absolutely, we should be taking cost out of the customer's invoice price. That is a core purpose of introducing the new technology that, as you say, removes friction, removes cost. So as long as you keep your margins, it's all fair. Well, you, one would say you can make higher margins on lower volumes if you do it particularly efficiently. We're in the Blueprint 2 phase, which Blueprint 1 was probably this big a la carte menu of all sorts of wish lists of wonderful things that could happen. And Blueprint 2 is the massively narrowed down food order to the restaurant now to say to the chef, right, we're definitely doing these three or four things now and I want them as soon as possible. So out of those things in Blueprint 2 that are definitely happening, as John Neal described, you know, the rubber hitting the road phase, what are those things you're most looking forward to getting delivered as soon as possible? Firstly, I should say, I think they are doing a tremendous job, John and his team. I was worried as Blueprint 2 was starting to emerge that we might be taken from an 85,000-foot view to an 80,000-foot view, but no, wrong to have been worried. They've brought out substance and detail in terms of plan, so we have great articulation. The thing clearly that is right is data first and concentration on data creation, and obviously at the placement process is the place to start, because that's where we start. So, The work in that regard, I think, is really at the forefront of their thinking, and I'm endorsing. I mean, I completely endorse what they're doing. Now, proof still to come, and um, I'm delighted with the progress. I would say they've made more progress than any previous team has around these issues at any point in recent history. So I'm delighted with the way it's going and the way they're thinking and the way they're engaging with the market. And I'll admit to having been peripherally involved through John and his team in being asked for an opinion, even being engaged in some of the workshops, having people in my team actively engaged in some of their work. So I think they're making the right moves forward. Huge now steps of proof, which need to be delivered for sure. Do you think it's the data's core because it's the building block of everything? And then once you've got it, then all sorts of other people can come out of the woodwork and do all sorts of things that perhaps you wouldn't have planned, but they're just going to happen because they've now got the building blocks that they can use. So again, I'll say it again, I point to our parent and the experience they've had in their sector. And um, they tell us data is the start point. That's right. You've landed in the right place. And to your point, all sorts of other things will emerge as you are informed by that data. All sorts of activities will start to happen. I think I've come to the end of my list of questions. So I don't know, Steve, have you got anything you'd like to, a final parting shot you'd like to, to share with the listeners before? Because we've had such a, a wide-ranging discussion. Maybe it's, what's the one thing you'd like to tell them about Corrents before we go? Can I make a more general point than, yeah. than even about our business? Will you indulge me in doing that? Reflecting with some colleagues recently on the last year and what it's meant, the experience we've all had and the challenges that we've all had and the resilience that our industry has shown yet again, right? I think it's actually remarkable and we don't call it out enough. So I take this opportunity, your invitation to call it out. There's a huge resilience in our industry that there isn't in other industries. And we are 
embedded in the fabric of so many things that are going on around the world at the moment, the challenges our customers face as we start to see the changes in deployment of capital, as we start to see infrastructure being built around the world. Literally, the crisis and our involvement and engagement in helping through the crisis, it's a reminder that we're very privileged to work in a fantastic industry and I'm very proud to have spent my three decades so far in this industry. Yes, I suppose it would be right to say that you only know how essential we are when we suddenly become front page news when a small part of it doesn't work. And, and I think that's the point, Mark, and that actually was the stimulant of the conversation is we, we're very good at getting a kick in and, and calling out all the woes, right? But actually, there's so much good that goes on as a result of what the millions of people who work in our industry around the world do every single day. We should advocate that a little bit more. It sounds like you've talked yourself into another cross-industry no. role, Steve. <laughs> you've paid your dues, is that fair? I enjoyed it thoroughly. I enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was a huge privilege to uh, pick up the LMG chairmanship. Actually, I had predecessors, I should say, Mark, I wasn't first. I did it a bit differently, perhaps, but there were others before me. But it was a huge privilege. I really enjoy, I'd encourage people, get involved in the industry you're in. I got a huge amount out of it personally. We did corporately. I used to have a little pin in my lapel at the time, and it was good for the business, good for me as a person. I enjoyed it and learned a lot from it, but I did it. I've now got other responsibilities. You've paid your dues, and now you've paid your dues to the voice of insurance, Steve. So I thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I need to book you in to come and give us an update sometime soon. So because sure, there'll be to. so much news. Anyway, hopefully, speak to you soon. Look after yourself and uh, come on the show again soon. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.